Hello, welcome to another edition of Proselytize or Apostatize. I'm your host, David Palman, and I'm here with my co-host, David Russell. How are you doing, David? Hey, man, what's up, buddy? Doing well. How are you surviving the coronavirus, man? Well, just like you, I now have a piece of paper that I put in my car to allow me to uh, go to work. But the good news is I'm working two days a week and getting paid for 40 hours. So uh, we have enough guys that they rotate the stuff in, and so everybody keeps their job. Our place is fully funded, and they're paying us, so I'm happy for that. Nice, nice. How about you, man? I mean, I'm holding up. Um, you know, I, I'm one of those essential workers in the grocery store, so we're getting. And I'm in New York, where it's bad, so we get <laughs> swarmed. Uh, but you know, uh, we're, we're making it. Nobody, uh, not me or my family, sick. So you know, that's good. It's going good, good. Man. That's good. So, so we're so supposed we- to have a bit of a debate today, but uh, looks like this is. Um, our atheist was scared of our theist and didn't didn't want to show. Oh, <laughs> I wouldn't say that, man. David's pretty 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 not scared of of talking to anybody. He's a great host. I, 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 yeah, I, I was kidding there, but no, we I, do have uh, Evan Mitten on with us today. Um, and you know, he hopefully we're going to try to be getting him to debate uh, David Johnson from Skeptics and Seekers here on uh, whether or not the universe had a beginning. But uh, Evan, uh, you're from CerebralFaith.net. You're the blogger over there, and you host the Cerebral Faith podcast. I'll say it right. You know, that, that's a bit of a tongue twister there when you're saying it fast. <laughs> and then you're the author of uh, My Redeemer Lives and The Case for the One True God. And uh, you're working on a book on hell, right? That's still on the table. Right. I'm right. still uh, I'm still having it proofread. It's kind of going coming along more slowly than I would uh, than I would like. But I'm hoping to get it out soon. Uh, it's it's pretty much a revision of the my previous hell book, a hellacious doctrine. I was a traditionalist back then. I'm a conditionalist now, and so and, uh, I have like three whole chapters debated, uh, dedicated to the eternal torment and uh, the annihilation debate. And I also go into more detail into the arguments for God's existence in the book. So it's a much thicker version, and a you know revised edition of a hellacious doctrine with some recantations well good good all right so uh russell we're talking about uh arguments from cosmology today right cosmological arguments for the existence of god absolutely uh one of the biggest questions that you know one of the biggest things that I like to go over. I mean, we had a debate last year. We interviewed Hugh Ross this year, and I always like to to keep up, like in an apologetics, uh, you know, segment to talk about the cosmological argument because I think it's such a good argument. And one of the questions that I got for you, Evan, is where are we at with cosmological arguments? Are they still great arguments to you? Well, I think they are. I I use them uh, all the time in debating atheists. Uh, whether that be um, yeah, formally or informally in a broadcasted kind of podcast YouTube thing or just like over Facebook uh, threads or forums. Uh, and, you know, I've, I've actually debated that I've actually used this in witnessing to atheists and skeptics for years. And I, I'm not running into any I mean, none of them have con- uh, have convinced me that the Kalam cosmological argument or the contingency argument are are bad arguments. I they I can't find 
any. And when I listen to people who like William Lane Craig debate atheist philosophers on the the Kalam and you know even cosmologists like Sean Carroll or Lawrence Krauss, uh, they they don't give very good responses to Craig. So, so I think they're good. Now, so, where are we? So where what are we about, at today? Yeah. Now, I think, actually, I think there, I don't know if any of you, oh, you probably have. <laughs> He's kind of internet famous now. Michael Jones, Inspiring Philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, he kind of got this argument from Jonathan Ratz. I hope I said his name right. Um, they've formulated an argument that is a, pretty much a, a cosmological argument. I consider it a cosmological argument, and I, I'm hoping to have Jones on my own podcast later this year to talk about it. It's called the digital physics argument for God's existence, and it's it's trying to argue that the 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 existence of the universe is like is kind of like a hologram being projected from underlying information, kind of mm-hmm. kind of like kind of like the real universe is a film projector and what we experience is like a projection on the wall kind of a thing. Yeah. And that I've heard it. And that, that is that points to a mind that is kind of, you know, a mind is projecting it. Cause you know, it's and inspiring philosophy. He's got a whole video on this on YouTube. You could go check it out. Um, People, it, it kind of, I think it entails a view called idealism so if you're not an idealist, you might not you might not like that version, but that's that's a new that's a new cosmological argument that I had not heard before until recently and I hadn't I haven't heard other than Jones and Rats, I haven't heard anybody else use that. So that's and it's using the the most uh current developments in physics and cosmology. Uh it's pretty fascinating. Yeah, so I, I, what makes a cosmological argument good? I mean, let's get into that. Let's explore what makes a cosmo. Like, for example, let's start with the Leibniz uh, contingency argument. What makes that a good argument? Uh, well, I mean, what makes any argument good? Uh, true, uh, uh, it has to be formally valid. That is to say, it's uh, the conclusion has to follow from the premises by the laws of logic. And it has to have true premises, and the premises, we got to have good reasons to believe that they exist. Now, the contingency argument for God's existence, does it meet those three criteria for what it makes a good argument? I think it does. Uh, the premises of the argument are, one, everything that exists has an explanation of its existence, either in the necessity of its own nature or in an external cause. Two, if the universe has an explanation of its existence, that explanation is God. Three, the universe exists. Four, therefore, the universe has an explanation of its existence. Five, therefore, the explanation of the universe is God. Uh, and this is William Lane Craig's version. There are other versions, but I li- this is the one I'm most familiar with. Um, mm-hmm. You know, other ways of, of cashing it out. But it uh, now the... Um, the conclusion does follow steps. Uh, premise four logically follows from premises one and three, and five follows from two and four. So, mm-hmm. uh, 
do you want me to like go into the evidence for those premises now? Yeah, yeah. Let's let's explore it a little bit because uh, I'm gonna section this up because I, I do want to talk to you a little bit about Craig and, Craig and Carol's uh, debate. I think it's happened what like six seven years ago now, but yeah, let, let's yeah. let's do that and uh, then we'll get into more of the Kalam kind of does the unit when we won't talk exactly but i want to see what what you think about why the universe had a beginning why do you think it had a beginning um and we won't go too much into uh the debate portion we'll save that for the debate but i do want to like touch base on it and we can talk all right uh so premise one everything so that go ahead exists has an explanation of its existence either in the necessity of its own nature or in an external cause uh this premise asserts that uh, anything that exists, there there are two cat two types of things, two types of explanations that could account for why it exists. Uh, either it exists because something else outside of it and existed before it caused it to come into being, like your parents caused you to come into being, or it just exists out of a necessity of its own nature. It has to exist, and it cannot it cannot not exist. It, it's non-existence is impossible. Uh, many Platonists think that abstract objects like numbers uh, have this kind of existence. Uh, if they exist, they exist necessarily. The number one cannot fail to exist. Um, so the, uh, the issue. So now that we know what kind of uh, explanations we're talking about here, is the premise true? I think it is. Um, I think it's actually self-evident. And William Lane Craig, in his writings uh, on the subject, he gives this illustration. He says to imagine that you are walking through the forest with a friend and you find a ball lying on the ground. And you just wonder, like, you know, why is the ball there? Uh, if your friend said to you, don't worry about it, the ball just exists inexplicably, you would either think that he was crazy or he was just joking around. You would never take seriously the claim that the, the ball just existed there for no reason, with no explanation why it existed or how it came to be there. Whatever it is we think about, whether it be cars, trucks, tables, peoples, houses, balloons, PlayStations 4s, uh, we all know there has to be some explanation for their existence. Nothing exists for no reason. And even little children know this. Why else would they ask mom and dad, where do babies come from? They they know that they have an explanation for their existence. They didn't they don't exist inexplicably. Yeah. And yeah, uh, so so let me let me jump in here real quick because we got David Palman over here who is really big in the philosophy too. David, why are self evident uh arguments stuff stuff that's self evident? Why is that good evidence? Why would you consider it good evidence? Well, it's not even evidence per se. Things that are self-evident uh, in the philosophical sense of yeah. it right, are things that literally can't be false. Uh, so it's not something that like I'm just presenting uh, you know, something to raise the probability of the truth of something. Uh, when we claim something is self-evident, uh, philosophically, this is something that actually can't be false. And so it kind of gets, at least in my view, and I know me and Evan just had a little bit of disagreement over cartesianism the other day but in my view at least um things that are self-evident things that cannot be false these get the uh highest level of epistemological um priority i guess if you want to say uh these are sort of what 
get the start of. So if something can't be false, that's the best kind of proof that you can have for uh, the truth of anything. Mm -hmm. All right. All right. So so let's move to the second. Are, are you still on the first premise? Or do you want to well, move to the second? What, uh, well, there is a, a very uh, good. There is a very obvious objection to the first premise that is bound to come up whenever you give the argument to any atheist, and I think I, I'd like to I, I'd like to respond to that before we get to premise two. Sure, go ahead. That the explanation there is if everything has to have an explanation for its existence, then that means that God has to have an explanation for His existence, mm -hmm. and so you know the atheist. Obviously, he doesn't believe in God, but he's saying, hey, you Christians, this is an unacceptable answer to you. So you probably just to say that God has to have an explanation of his existence. You know, you know, God's the uncreated creator. He's the uncaused cause He from everlasting to everlasting. Um, so it's kind of try to, to throw it back in the, the Christian, the Christian theist space and say, no, you shouldn't use the, this argument. Mm -hmm. um, but the problem is, is that. We, we would not deny that God has an explanation for his existence. The first premise says everything has two kinds of explanations, an external cause or it exists of a necessity of its own nature. We would say, no, God doesn't have the, uh, an external cause as, its, uh, as his explanation. The explanation for God's existence is that he's a necessary being. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's always an initial cause. That, that gives way to all the effects, right? That, you know, there's always that starting point. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that makes sense. But uh, on the second premise, you know, why does it have to be God? Let's talk about that. Yeah. At first, it, when you, like, when you first look at the syllogism, it looks like a huge logical leap, but it actually makes sense when you think about it. Uh, in order to have caused the universe to come into being, um, and this, of course, assumes that the universe is, it, it, the explanation for the existence of the universe is that it doesn't exist by necessity of its own nature. And there are some good reasons for that. Uh, one of the, re you know, if the universe had a beginning to its existence, like as Big Bang cosmology shows, obviously it couldn't be a necessary being. Necessary things cannot not exist at any time. They they always existed and they always will exist, but also, um, William Lane Craig is like given a good illustration to say, you know, the universe could have been different. Like we could have had a different arrangement of quarks or strings. Uh, the universe could have ma been made out of something completely different. And if string theorists are right, then it is. We, it's not quarks. It's strings. That you know, string theory. They're kind of, scientists are kind of giving up on that now, but that's besides the point. The point is that, theoretically, we could have had a different universe, and thus the universe that actually exists isn't, yeah. isn't necessary. So even if you don't presuppose that the universe had a beginning, and, and, this, and opponents of the contingency argument, they, they don't usually go that, down this road anyway, for, mm -hmm. usually for that reason, you know, the Big Bang. But... Uh, but so if it's not if the explanation for the universe's existence isn't that it exists by a necessity of its own nature, it had to have an external cause. Well, what kind of cause could the universe have? It had to be a cause beyond it had it had to be a cause beyond space and time, beyond all matter, energy, space and time. And therefore, 
be immaterial. Well, why must it be? Uh, that means it's spaceless. If it's the cause of all space, it cannot be inside of space. It cannot be inside of something that doesn't exist yet. Just as the builder of the house cannot be inside of the house until it makes the house. Um, it must be immaterial for the same reason that it's spaceless. Material objects cannot exist unless space exists. Material objects occupy spatial dimensions. If there are no space, uh, I mean, if there, if there are no spatial dimensions, matter cannot exist. This means that because the cause is non-material, it's therefore, uh, I mean, non-spatial, therefore it's non-material. And whatever has the ability to either bring the universe into being or, and, and or sustain it had to be enormously powerful. It also must be a personal being. Why? Because we've just we've just established that it's immaterial, and the immateriality of the cause entails its personality. There are two types of things recognized by philosophers to be immaterial: either abstract objects such as numbers, sets, or other mathematical entities, or unembodied minds. But abstract objects can't cause any effects. That's part of what it means to be abstract. The number three isn't going to be producing any effects anytime soon. Given that abstract objects are causally impotent, it follows that an unembodied mind is the cause of the universe's beginning. Now, an, a spaceless, immaterial, powerful, unembodied mind sounds a lot like God to me. Now, if you know if the, if the skeptic, if he doesn't like the word God in the premise, he can just, you know, as William Lane Craig says in his video, his animated video on the contingency argument, he, he could just take the the, the the name God out and just put the spaceless, immaterial, powerful, timeless, personal creator. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say, so so the atheist can like say just take out God and put that in. But I mean, does that even, does that give us like the justification to say it is God? It is a creator. Uh, Cause like, even we're kind of using like time here saying like before creation comes, you know, something had to create it. And we're saying before time, there's basically time. We're using like, I guess, time language to, to usher in a creation narrative of some sort. You, you kind of understand what I'm saying. I, it's, I'm trying to. Yeah. I'm having some hard, hard time well, putting it together. But well, with the well, with the the God name thing, that that's just, you know, that's just uh, semantics. Uh, I'm, I'm, in, in fact, I think Craig, at least when I when I use that, when I say that same thing, I'm just being cheeky. I'm like, hey, if you don't, if you don't yeah. like the name, like if you don't like the name dog, if you don't like to call this animal a dog, let's just call it a four-legged furry canine. <laughs> I mean, it's still the same thing. It's just, it's just, you know, as uh, Shakespeare said, a rose by any other name is just a sweet. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, any kind of worldview that says that there's a, a an unembodied, spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful creator, that's that's deism at least, but it's certainly not atheism. Yeah. Yeah. So let's move. Let's move on here, David. Do you have any questions on this so far? Well, I was going to oh, ask him. I forgot. Well, I forgot about the. I forgot about the time thing. Yeah, we often yeah. use before, before the creation, before, and that's yeah. not. Um, 
that does throw people off. People are like, wait, that's incoherent because, you know, especially if you're thinking Big Bang cosmology, oh, that's the beginning of time. Uh, But I think it's helpful uh, if if two things, if if we if we realize that we're we're using like. I like to think of it as like logical priority. It's like God, God did not do something before he created the universe. God's act, his decision to create the universe is simultaneous with the yeah. universe's coming into being. And I think it's I think it's better if we speak of like God is the logical cause of the universe rather than mm-hmm. the temporal cause, rather than existing yeah. temporally prior to boom. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, I was going to have you highlight on that because that's a big one people bring up a lot. Um, but David, go ahead. You said you had a, a question or two. Well, yeah, I, I just wanted to ask Evan, well, what do you think is probably the best or strongest objection to cosmological arguments, either particularly um, or generally? I think probably the strongest against, um, well, any any form of cosmological argument, uh, but especially the Kalam is... Uh, I think the mother universe explanation that says that our universe is just one baby uh, that was spawned in a much wider mother multiverse. And there's, there's all these different baby universes being spawned from this mother. Now, I think that's the, the, I think that's the best objection, but I don't think it works. And here's uh, yeah. Good. Uh, be, because um, at any point within this mother universe vacuum, there is a non-zero probability for a universe to be formed at that point in the mother vacuum. Yeah. Now, if the atheist is saying this mother, you know, even though our universe began, if the mother universe always existed, I mean, it's eternally past. So what that means is there was an infinite amount of time for a baby universe to form at every single point within the mother universe. Any legi- any mathematician will tell you this. Uh, I I once I once heard a mathematician joke that if you ha- if you let your dryer run for an infinite amount of time, it, it would eventually fold your laundry for you because there's an there's a non-zero probability of that happening. So mm-hmm. w- if the mother universe is eternally existent, it had an infinite amount of time to spawn bubbles. Now here's what Here's what follows from that. There would be the the mother universe would be so filled with so many bubbles, so many baby universes that all of the universe would collide. They would cobble together and form what appears to be an infinitely large, infinitely old universe, which contradicts the observations that we live in a universe of finite size and age. Now, if the atheist wants to get out of that and say, well, okay, well, maybe the mother universe is expanding then the Borg-Guth-Vilenkin theorem applies to the mother universe, and the Borg-Guth-Vilenkin theorem says that any universe which has been expanding on average within its past had to have a beginning. If the mother universe is getting bigger and bigger and bigger as it gets older and older and older, then if you rewind the clock, backward extrapolation, eventually the mother universe shrinks down to a singularity beginning and... You, you haven't you haven't avoided the problem of an ultimate first cause. Now, if they want to postulate a grandmother universe, you just run into the same problems. Mm-hmm. And you just so 
the way I see it, they just keep kicking. They kick God farther and farther upstairs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They do it a lot. But what do you think about? I mean, even Guth doesn't really hold to the BG theorem anymore. So he thinks that that space was eternal, especially if you have a reversed era of time. So what do you say to those things? Um, well, I mean, he, he's a proponent of eternal inflation. Well, I still think that if the universe is getting bigger and bigger as it gets older and older, then the, the theorem aside, it had to have been smaller and smaller in the past. In fact, this is what led uh, astronomers in the early 1900s to conclude that our universe had a beginning because they realized the galaxy, you know, it was expanding. And, if you know, Lee Strobel... In his film, The Case for a Creator, he ex he illustrates it like this. He has a film projector, and it's showing all of these dots moving farther and farther away as the uh, as the film runs forward. And then the pause button on the film projector is pushed, and the rewind button is pushed. And as the film runs backwards, all of those dots get closer and closer together until they're all conjoined in, in, together like that yeah but wouldn't it wouldn't it that negate that if there's a reversal in the arrow of time are you familiar with uh aguirre grayton's model of the universe and carol's the carol chin model no i i haven't i haven't i haven't been i haven't been studying cosmology for a while i've had my oh, okay. i've had my head yeah. in ancient Near Eastern biblical study <laughs> the past year and a half, so... Yeah, so so basically he, he, they propose a reversal of the era of time. The problem is, and this is uh, this is what, like, uh, uh, I think Wall, he talks about this too, um, who Craig brings up, Aaron Wall. Uh, he's a Christian cosmologist, and, uh, you know, he's he proposed a, a paper, did the, or a bunch of papers where him and Carol go back and forth and there's some, you know, his, his stuff on, did the universe actually have a beginning? And he still posits that, yeah, it looks like it looks so because, you know, uh, the only way it couldn't is if there's a reversal of the arrow time, but you're still having problems with the entropy argument, you know, you, you know, whereas where, you know, that they they still need a entropic beginning, you know, they still haven't been able to explain that. And that's kind of like where he comes to, but um, yeah, there's just a there's a lot of a lot of speculation out there, and you know anything before that one billionth of a second is, is speculative, right? So I mean that's what we're kind of going on. So yeah, it's pretty neat, but I thought I'd just bring it up to to see where you were at on it. Yeah, that's but. also that's also um, I I noticed that a lot of atheists uh, I I you know I I should probably. Uh, you know, look into that. But I've had, like I said, I've had, I've been studying, I wrote a whole paper series on the primeval history of Genesis, Genesis 1 to 11. And so mm -hmm. I've been studying ancient Near Eastern uh, uh, creation myths, and uh, I've been looking into John Walton's and Michael Heiser's and John Selhammer's and Ben Stanhope's writings and, and, and all that. So, you know, that's, that's, that's new to me. Uh, I'm just yeah. going... But uh, it doesn't just just based on what I heard. It, it doesn't sound persuasive, but I'd have to 
look into that. But there's still there's a couple of philosophical arguments for the universe's beginning. There's you know the impossibility of traversing an infinite number of moments, the impossibility, yeah. of, uh, and we don't we I don't think we have time to get into those today. But nah, nah. This is this is this is just a, a kind of idea of like where you see the a, a, the state of of cosmological arguments today, and you know, and also you know where David sees them as well, and where I see them. I I personally think they're probably some of the strongest arguments that we have in our arsenal. Yeah. when it comes to and stuff the, like that. What, what you said there about that that whole reversal of time thing, uh, that would that would only affect the Kalam. That would not affect the contingency argument at all. All that yeah. you need for the contingency argument to work is that the universe not be logically necessary in it in its being. I mean, if the yeah. universe could have failed to exist, if it didn't have to exist, then the argument goes through. Yeah. Absolutely. David, you got any questions yourself? No, I think you cover all the bases pretty well. Yeah, you, you know, there's one thing, and, I, and I, we'll, we'll kind of conclude it with this. Uh, you're talking about the the, the Carroll-Craig uh, argument there. Um, so you, what did you think about that? Did you, I thought that was Craig's worst performance. <laughs> and I still... Yeah, you know, and you know what? You know, and maybe you can explain this to me, because this is... what. I'm really into astrophysics. It's one of it's one of my my you know my main studies, and it's amazing to me. Uh, you know, these are these arguments are really amazing to me. They just they they break my my brain. And the biggest one that breaks my brain the most is Boltzmann's brains. Do you have any any word on that? Oh, yeah, the Boltzmann brains argument, I use that one all the time when I'm using the fine-tuning argument because yeah. it really shows the absurdity of postulating an infinite number of universes to account for the fine-tuning. Because like I said earlier, inf if you've got an infinite number of, of chances, if there's a non-zero probability of something occurring, it will occur. There will yeah. be a, a universe somewhere where the, laundry, where the dryer folds your laundry. Yeah. <laughs> and so you were... If you have, you can have all sorts of crazy things if you've got an infant. Yeah, it accounts for the fine tuning. What it, it, you, you, you could have universes where uh, John Kinson, he's, he's a physicist, he wrote a book called God in the Multiverse. He said that there could be a universe somewhere where every time someone casts a magic spell, the molecules and the, and the particles in the universe behave in just such a way that it looks like the spell was successful every single mm. time. Uh, so you could have, like, you know, Hogwarts. It's not really mm. magic. It's just molecules happening to do things by chance. And so what, what Craig points out, what he says is that there could be a whole bunch of universes, the invasion of the Boltzmann brains, where... Huh. Uh, out of out of quantum fluctuations, a brain, a single brain, comes into being, and observes, uh, observes an orderly universe. Maybe it's an illusion of the brain or something. I don't know. But then the brain goes out of existence, and so you could be, for all you know, you could be a Boltzmann brain. You just spontaneously uh, fluctuated into being, and you're you think you have false memories of the past. And you're and you're going to go out of existence in a few minutes. It, it's yeah. Possible. So, so it yeah, really so, it destroys the grounds for 
rationality. It's, it's yeah, kind of like it it's does. kind of like Descartes' demon. So, so what do you think in regards to Craig and Carol's debate? What did you What did you take away from it? Did you ever see the whole symposium? Because that debate was just part of a symposium. It was really actually really interesting. I didn't see the whole symposium, and it, it has been a long time since I saw it. Yeah. So I can't I can't say if I thought it was Craig's worst performance. I'd yeah. have to go watch it again, and and because it's it's really not fresh in my mind what yeah. the two said. Yeah, you know, Carol. I, I think it was probably his worst because Carol was kind of disingenuous when he was bringing up some of the like when he he brought up the QET model, and you know that 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 actually is based on if there's a if the universe had zero point energy versus you know a very small percentage of energy i believe i can't remember right off the top of my head it's been a while since i've looked into it too but yeah it, yeah as far as like him slipping stuff in there like that and then going off you know the rails at it you know i think that was probably why that's why i would say it but so so on your opinion why does the universe have a beginning what are do you think the universe does have a beginning i think it does i think for and I'm going to give four arguments. Uh, I'm not going to unpack those yeah. arguments in this podcast because, yeah, for one thing, I don't want to, you know, we don't have the time. Another thing, I don't want to give too much away to my opponent who might uh, hear this later. But <laughs> Big Bang cosmology and all of the evidence for it, you know, the Big Bang, the second law of thermodynamics, uh, the argument that an actually infinite number of things cannot exist, and that includes yeah. past moments, and the argument that you cannot traverse uh, an infinite number of past moments. Uh, therefore, today couldn't have arrived, but obviously today has arrived. Therefore, we couldn't have endured a, an infinite number of past events. Mm -hmm. And like I said, uh, we, if you want to define universe as all of physical reality, and like, so like even, if you, even if we were to concede that you know, the whole mother universe scenario – you still get back to a beginning uh, and yeah. you posit a grandmother and a great grandmother and a great, great grandmother universe scenario. You still get back to a big, and because of that infinite regress problem, you can't traverse it. You can't just keep positing higher levels of grandmother universes. You've got to come to a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, uncaused, et cetera, et cetera, creator at, at some point in the, in the regress. So no quantum tunneling then like, Alexander Verlankum proposes. <laughs> no, the problem with that is that it's not... For one thing, the quantum vacuum is a part of our universe, and for another thing, it's not really nothing. Like, he's... Like, mm -hmm. it's... it's Like Lawrence Krauss says, he, he calls it nothing. No, it's a... Yeah. It's, a it's, it's got a physical structure. It's a sea of roaring, violent energy. It's... That's just... You misrepresent science if you call the quantum vacuum nothing. Okay, so when okay, so one thing is is you know so, and and this is the last part. So, um, so you're saying overall that there's a lot of good evidence for the beginning of the universe. Yes. All right. Well, that's that's pretty much all the questions I have for the day, David. Uh, you got anything else, buddy? What's the evidence against the universe having a beginning? Are you asking me or him? I'm asking Evan. Uh, <laughs> there isn't really. <laughs> Not that I could think of. In fact, um, 
I can't remember who said he was an atheist cosmologist. I can't remember who said it, uh, but I remember him saying that all the evidence we have points to the universe having a beginning. That's 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 a pretty strong claim. Uh, I wish I could, I wish I could point you to who said it, but uh, I think I've read the quote. I'm pretty sure it was Palenkin. Yeah. He's agnostic, but I could be wrong yeah. on that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah Lincoln has some pretty wild ideas too, um, you know. So yeah, so go ahead, David. You you said you wanted to know arguments against it. Um, yeah, well, I was just to give getting some, to say give there some aren't ammo. Any. You want you want some ammo for our atheist uh, uh, contender here when we get on? Well, like I said, the reversal of the error time is a a big one. Um, and that's not something we can just glance over. Uh, I don't think the the wire grating model holds up very well uh, as far as uh, not being able to define a cosmic uh, beginning to energy, so the entropic issues that 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 go on there. But like I hold to a Penrose plus model. So when I talk about Penrose plus model, it's basically Penrose's theory plus the thermodynamics and and uh you know uh it it allows for the universe to have a beginning but any any argument that's against it you have the uh penrose is 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 like very known for for talking about the the i guess oh man i i can't even remember the name of it but he was talking about it with craig this this uh last year in september on unbelievable and he talks about like there's some new new stuff that supports his theory about you know the universe basically basically getting to a point and then restarting. So you, you know so it's it, it's it's not an osculating model, but it's man I can't even think of the name. But there's that. There's also the 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 Sean Carroll uh, and uh, the, the Carroll Chen model. And the Wiregrate, and those those three are the only ones that uh, that I think that that put up a good front. But you got to remember anything anything down to a billionth of a second right before the Big Bang, or what we call the singularity and the Big Bang and all that. Anything in that one billionth of a second is speculative. So yeah, I don't really, uh, I don't really, uh, you know, I I don't really. The fact that we don't know what the universe is like during that that billionth of a second, I just don't know how you can infer that the uh, the universe is eternal from that. Yeah, I don't either. It'd be it'd be uh, like that's, yeah. I, I in fact I responded to uh, Rationality Rules making uh, his uh, Big Bang debunked uh, video. I have a blog post up on CerebralFaith.net, and I use the analogy of uh, like someone going up to someone hundreds and hundreds of years ago before a whole lot was known about embryology and saying that uh, because we the, people don't know what happens during the earliest stages of pregnancy like that billionth of a second of the of the pregnancy therefore uh, babies could uh, human beings could be eternal <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense you know if you yeah. the, the belly gets smaller and smaller as you reverse the arrow of time uh, mm -hmm. the baby the fetus had a beginning. <laughs> yeah, and the and the thing is, I, I think you run into a lot of like the big crunch, as they call it, as far as energy goes. Even if you if you try to take it take it back, and uh, I think Carol was the one that says that you know we just don't know um, what the laws of nature are when they get to something very far or very small, 
and you know regular physics don't work and general relativity doesn't work and stuff like that but i still think the most natural conclusion is okay so you're saying it doesn't have a beginning because you don't know you know this and that and then I hear him on Closer to Truth saying, hey, I don't want the universe to have a beginning because that's the end of science. And you're like, okay, that's where that bias is coming in, you know. But there's there's a lot to it, and, you know, I think there there are some arguments to take into consideration, as Aaron Wall says. But I still think that, as as Hugh Ross told us, it's pretty evident that it had a beginning. And it's, you know, you can know it had a beginning as well as I know that my son exists. <laughs> He said something along those lines, right, David? Yes, he did. And right. it's been, you know, a good, uh, good chat, gentlemen. Uh, yep. it's, uh, you know, we've seen the case for it. Uh, unfortunately, that we weren't able to have the debate today, but uh, we are going to try to have that, you know, get that set up uh, as soon as we can here. And so we'll get to really test the strength of these arguments out against uh, an atheist who will, you know, actually be challenging. So, uh, and yes, we'll, we'll try to connect you, Evan, with... Uh, with some of David's uh, material. Uh, Russell, I'm sure you can send that out to him. Be sure to check out Evan's website, Cerebral Faith. We'll have the link for that in the description. And uh, thank you, everyone, for tuning in. All right.